Welcome to the King's Anywhere podcast, inspirational teaching, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whenever you're ready. So today we're concluding a series called The Orchard, and we're returning to Psalm 1, which has been a really important psalm for us as a church. Psalm 1 acts as like an introduction to the whole of the book of Psalms. So it, it, I guess it wasn't written as that, but it's positioned and you look at it and you think, yeah, that makes sense of the whole book of Psalms. It teaches a view of life that we as followers of Jesus get to live. In fact, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that uh, he's written some really helpful stuff about Psalm 1. And one of the things he says is, we have here a kind of distillation of the essential teaching of scripture. So in Psalm 1, it gives you like, if you wanted to distill down what does the Bible teach about the righteous and the wicked, about God, Psalm 1 is where you need to go. So let me read Psalm 1 for us. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. His leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgments, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction." Some people wonder what happiness is about. The pursuit of happiness. There's a film, wasn't there, a statement out of the uh, foundations of the United States about the pursuit of happiness. Then Will Smith's in a film called The Pursuit of Happiness. And actually people always have been pursuing happiness. Thousands of years ago when this psalm was written, people were trying to work out how do you live a happy life? And people still are trying to work out how do you live a happy life? And this psalm tells us how to live a happy life. You see, blessed can be translated happy. So happy is the person, and then we have the psalm. There's a deep human need to be happy. And in this psalm, God tells us his recipe for happiness Psalm 1 confronts us with a choice. In fact, the whole Bible confronts us with this same choice. And the choice we make impacts the whole of our lives. The choice is this. Will you live God's way or will you follow the way of sin? That's the choice in Psalm 1. So it says, blessed is the person who lives this way, but the person who doesn't, here's how they live and here's the end of that journey. Many people, when they're younger, set out thinking it won't be difficult to have a happy life. Not everyone. Some people have very difficult starts in life. But lots of people start off, maybe when you finish school, finish your education, you're going into the workplace and you think, do you know what? I'm going to have a happy life. How hard can it be? I'm just going to have a happy life. And then maybe you've hit midlife and the happiness that you thought would be so easy to attain has not happened And so there's a crisis. Many people have a midlife crisis because I'm not living the happy life I thought I would live. 
And so a crisis ensues inside and we try and find out what happiness is. And if you don't deal with that, you reach older life with a sense of cynicism and disappointment. What's the point of all of this? Grumpy about things, unhappy, miserable. Not having discovered the secret of happiness. You see, happiness is a byproduct of a way of life. Anyone who pursues happiness for happiness's sake tends to miss it. But if you pursue something else, the psalm tells us, then the byproduct of that is your life will be happy. Happiness is not a pursuit in and of itself. So never make happiness an end in and of itself, because if you do, it will always elude you. Happiness, I think, is dependence, according to this psalm, on two things. Happiness depends on our relationship with God and his righteousness. That's the foundational thing. Who do you say Jesus is? Have you received the gift of righteousness? Him putting you right with himself in a right standing with God. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. But because of the grace of God, he makes us right with himself. He says, you are declared righteous because you've received the work of the cross and the resurrection, applied it to your life by grace and faith, and you've been changed. If we try and follow Jesus and we're double-minded, we try to live as if we don't know Jesus by the values of our world, and then we try and say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, that's a recipe for misery. Because we're living by two standards. We're pulled in two directions. We're constantly conflicted. But if we say, Jesus is my righteousness, and as a result of that, I'm going to progressively follow him for the rest of my days. Even though I'm a work in progress, I'm going to keep heading in that direction of travel, not try and compromise in two directions of travel. That leads to happiness. The second thing that leads to happiness is happiness depends on who you are and not what is happening. If your happiness depends on how life is going at the moment, then your happiness is going to go up and down pretty consistently throughout life. Because how many of us worked out, life isn't always easy. Life has its ups and downs. Life has its mountaintop times and life has its valley times. And if we just let our happiness be dictated to by, well, life's tricky, I've got this difficulty going on, happiness will fluctuate. But if our happiness is dependent upon, I am loved and accepted by God. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate me from the love of God. I've received him as my saviour and my Lord and he's promised I get to dwell in his household, his oikos, forever. That suddenly gives us a perspective, not to pretend that everything's easy because it's not but to have a sense of joy deep down that sustains us in the ups and downs of life. So let's dig into this psalm a little bit. We begin by the importance of choices. The one who is blessed or the one who is happy is because they have a relationship with God and that's informed the choices. The the psalmist talks about those who walk, stand and sit in a certain way that will not lead to happiness. It starts with the negative, if you like, and moves to the positive. The causes, it causes us to face the brutal facts and then deal with them. 
We can fool ourselves into thinking we can live with one foot in the world, a system without God, and one foot in the church following God's community and God's people and be happy. And we can't. You'll be miserable in the world because you'll be constantly wishing you were following Jesus. And if you're following Jesus with your eyes on the value system of our world, you'll be constantly miserable because you'll be wanting to live a lifestyle that's completely at odds with following Jesus. And so a choice, the psalmist begins right at the beginning of the psalm. There's a choice here. Follow Jesus or don't. But don't try and do both. And he talks about the fact that Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, nothing else can be. So if something else is more important than Jesus in your life, it's time to readjust that priority if you want a happy life and make Jesus Lord. If you go to the doctor and you're feeling unwell and you give them, they ask you your symptoms, they ask you questions, you tell the symptoms and the doctor makes a diagnosis. Imagine if the doctor made a diagnosis and the doctor knew you were unwell but didn't want to upset you, didn't want to cause you any anxiety or any concern so said to you, you're absolutely fine. There's not a problem at all. Crack on. You would think you'd leave the doctors with less concern than if he actually said to you, this is your problem, here's the treatment you're going to need, and here's how you can get better. Receiving a clear diagnosis might not be the news that you'd hoped for, but it's the news that you need in order to recover. Sometimes a doctor, if a doctor said to you, you're fine when you weren't, you'd think there's something wrong with that doctor. The Bible doesn't do that to us. The Bible gives us a clear diagnosis, it gives us a prescription of activity to do to put that right, and it gives us an outcome. And that's what this psalm is doing right at the beginning. It's giving us a clear diagnosis of how to live a life that becomes a happy life. And the psalmist starts to talk about the progressive nature of sin. This is the diagnosis, this is the painful bit, this is the bit you don't want to hear from the doctor that you need to hear if you're going to get better. He says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Do you see the progression? You're walking, you're standing, you're sitting. Sin has a progressive, corrosive nature. When we walk in step with the wicked, we find it's not long until we're standing in the way of sinning. In other, ways, in other words, when we walk in and out of being a certain way, we find that the more we walk in and out of that disobedience, the easier it is to stand in it. So that thing you did once or twice, that attitude, that reaction. It was easy to walk in and out at one stage, but the more you walked in and out, you stopped walking and you started standing. It's all right. It's not doing any harm. I'll just stand here. It's all right. And we suddenly, the thing that we walked in and out of with some discomfort, we find that we can stand in with very little conscience, troubled. It's still not right. We've just got used to it. And if we stay there long enough, we just sit there. We're just not going to move. We've settled down into a way of life 
that one time we walked in and out of, then we parked at, and then it's become, that's just me. Sin is corrosive. Sitting in the seat of mockers, it's got nothing to do with coffee. Sitting in the seat of mockers. God creates a culture where the human soul can flourish. He's an incredible gardener. He creates an environment where you can flourish. The seat of mockers erodes that environment of flourishing in God. Now it might be that the persons who you're sitting with who are mocking are mocking God. Making fun of God. There is no God. Live as you please. Why are you doing this? Why are you being so uptight about that? Doesn't matter, just tell a lie. Doesn't matter, just sleep around. Doesn't matter, just be critical, be cynical. Doesn't matter. There's no God. There can be that mocking of God. But there's also a sense of humour as well. Humour is a gift from God. Laughter is a gift from God. But how we use humour can build up or can pull down. Sitting in the seat of mockers. Isn't it an interesting phrase? What does it mean? How we use humour indicates where our heart is. I've been thinking about this this for weeks and this week particularly, just meditating on, God, what does it mean to sit in the seat of mockers? And the thing I've sensed as I've been... Letting this chew over is, how we use humour is really important. It's as, as simple as that in some senses. You see, some people use humour to lift people up. Andy came to me this morning, made me laugh. <laughs> it was good. He did. One of those three jokes was great. <laughs> was great. He made me laugh. He, he, He said things that lifted me up. Humour, making somebody laugh, brilliant. Or do you use humour to put people down and lift you up? That's not good. That's sitting in the seat of mockers. So does your humour help the flourishing of that person? Or does it leave them feeling belittled, less than, insecure, You think, oh, this is just a detail, Darren. No, no. You see, the gospel impacts everything, including our sense of humour. The question isn't, is it funny? The question is, is it helpful? That's the question. The Apostle Paul writes about humour to the Ephesians. He says, nor should there be any obscenity, any foolish talk. Any coarse joking, which are out of place. Just because it's funny on telly doesn't mean it's funny for us. It's out of place, Paul says. Are you being prudish? No, I'm trying to follow the path of the righteous, not the path of the wicked. But rather, thanksgiving. Now, one of Jesus' nicknames was friend of sinners. He didn't give himself that title. Other people called him that. You know why they gave him that name? Because he was a friend of sinners. 
he went and actually did sit with people and be with people whose lives were far from God's standards and ways. But here's the difference. He did not take on their values. He introduced his to them. So Jesus didn't come out of the conversations with them with their view on sex. He went out of the conversation with still his own view on it. He didn't come out of those conversations with their humour. He came out with his own. He didn't come out with their views on how important it is to tell the truth. He came out with his own. He went in full of the Spirit, made a difference, and came out full of the Spirit. That's what we get to do. I've seen it over the years. And and if you follow Jesus any length of time, you'll have seen it. People who are living for Jesus, walking by faith. Full of hope and encouragement, but then they start to walk with people who suddenly become critical, cynical, pulling them down, pulling God's work down, pulling the church down, pulling the mission of God down. Oh, you don't need to do that. You don't need to live this way. And those who were once on fire from God, for, for God walked in to a conversation, a way of thinking that wasn't helpful. But they walked back out. But they walked back in because they kind of liked it. And they stood there for a bit. And eventually, they can't move. They just settle down there. That's who I am. Now, I did say this was the negative bit to begin with. It gets a little bit more encouraging than this, so do bear with me. The difference is in the book of Ephesians. Because the book of Ephesians says, in Ephesians 2.6, we are seated with Christ. So we're positioned, we've settled down in knowing I'm a loved child of God. There is nothing that can separate me from his love. He is good, so I don't need to look anywhere else for satisfaction. He is great, so I don't need to be in charge. He's glorious, so I don't need to prove myself to other people. He's gracious, so there's no fear. I'm seated in Christ. And when I'm seated in Christ, Ephesians says, then I can walk. That's, so seated is Ephesians 2.6. Ephesians 5.2 says, then walk in the way of love. So because I'm seated in Christ, I can walk into situations and bring the love of God. I can walk into the workplace and bring the love of God. I can walk into a conflict and bring the love of God. I can walk into family and bring the love of God. I can walk into my friendships and bring the love of God. Why? Because of where I'm seated. And then Ephesians 6 says, And having done everything, stand. So when you can't make much progress, because you're seated in Christ, because you're walking in love, just stand your ground. Do you see how it's a different order from the psalm? The psalm was... You walk in and walk out, or you'll end up stood, or you'll end up stuck. Ephesians flips it around. No, you're already seated. Some were better. You've got a better seat. So walk differently and end up stood in a different way. It starts with the work of Christ, not our self-effort. So I'm going to move on. Happy life is a life that delights in the word of God. Verse 2. Our life shaped by the truth of Scripture. Someone who reads about and thinks about and contemplates and chews on the truth of the Scriptures. Jesus said in John 
8.32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Our actions betray our heart. What we do betrays what we believe, not just what we say. Our actions betray our heart. There's a thing behind the thing. We respond in certain ways, good or bad, because of what we believe. So some people reject other people. And you think, oh, they're just an awkward person, aren't they? They just reject everybody. They just reject people. But the thing behind the thing is, there's a fear of being rejected. So I'll reject you first. That could be it, couldn't it? Some people reject others before they get the chance to be rejected. Or there can be people who feel like, I'm just going to make fun of other people. I'm just going to make fun of them. I'm going to put them down. Well, the thing behind the thing can be, I feel really insecure. I don't want people pointing at me and laughing at me. So I'm going to turn the tables. I'm going to make sure we get them laughing at them first. The thing behind the thing. Or there can be... uh, I hide away from people. I just don't engage in conversation. I just I keep myself away. And it can be, I'm afraid. And so I hide. But what can be projected is, I'm not interested. Or, we try too hard or give up easily. The thing behind the thing could be, I don't feel good enough. I don't feel accepted. I don't feel like I'm seated in Christ. So I'm going to work my hardest to make you accept me. Or... The flip side of that is, I don't care. I'm just not, I'm going to project, I don't care. Because I don't think I'll make the standard. The key is, the truth sets you free. But if you don't engage with scripture, you won't know the truth, so you won't be free. The truth about rejection is, you're accepted in the beloved. The truth about being afraid of being laughed at is that, hey, God smiles over you. He doesn't laugh at you. He's so pleased. The truth about hiding away is that God comes looking for us and says, I want you as part of my family. The truth about trying too hard is that God has saved you by grace and empowers you to live for him. The truth sets you free. Two Corinthians Ten five says, we demolish every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and bring it into obedience to Christ. King James Version says, we're casting down imaginations that stand against the knowledge of God. There are some things we imagine are happening that are not happening and the truth shows us the reality to set us free. We imagine someone thinks something about us. We imagine God feels this way about us. We imagine this situation is too difficult. Spiritual warfare is allowing the truth to get into your head so that those imaginations are cast down and you live free. Some of the greatest fears that we battle with are unrealities. We've imagined them. Monsters under the bed that are not really there. And the truth of the gospel casts down those imaginations to set us free to live in the truth that brings happiness. Verse 3 says we'll be like a tree planted. The picture of the life of a follower of Jesus is a tree. It's a powerful one. It speaks of being rooted in God's love, producing fruit in keeping with who he is. Ephesians again, 3.17 says, Paul writing to that Ephesian church says, I pray that you, being rooted 
and established in love. Our roots go down deep. When we realize and truly believe that we're rooted in the love of God, we're set free to love God and to love his people and his mission. If we struggle to love God, if we're uninterested in God's mission, if we're not devoted to his people, if we're ambivalent about the word of God, lukewarm about the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, these are indications of where our hearts are. So where the root is produces the fruit. I want to be clear about something here at this point. We're planted as trees and it's a work of God. It's not our activity. We are totally dependent upon the grace of God. Our being planted as a tree of righteousness is a result of the work of Jesus Christ on the tree of Calvary. The fruit of that tree is these trees. Do you get that? The fruit of that tree are these trees. So we're planted not by our self-effort, not by our righteousness, but by his. The psalmist speaks of being planted by streams of water. We're not an accident. We're planted. In John 15, the Bible says that the Father, God the Father, is the gardener. It's not the CEO. He's the gardener. He has made us accepted in the beloved according to Ephesians 1.6. God has done the work and we put our faith in him. But even that faith is a gift of God, so we don't boast. It's all of the grace of God. And we're planted by streams of refreshing, restoring water. The nutrients we need to bear the fruit that God has for us. God's planted us near those things. The word of God. Ongoing in filling with the Holy Spirit, fellowship with God's people, forgiveness, mission, the power of the gospel, prayer, all those things that flow into our lives that cause us to flourish. People chatted to me over the years and said, I'm struggling as a Christian. I'm I'm, I'm struggling to grow and to bear fruit. Well, where are you planted? Where are you drawing your nutrients from? Well, do you pray? Well, not much. Prayer doesn't earn you anything, but it just it's an open conversation with God. Do you read the Bible? Well, not, not much. Well, reading the Bible doesn't earn you anything, but it just does you good. Do you fellowship with other believers regularly, once a month, whether I feel like it or not? What do you any good? There's a commitment, a devotion to drawing of those nutrients. Not a half-heartedness, but a commitment. Do the simple things consistently. A tree planted Drink from the stream that's near you. Read the Bible each day. Be filled with the Spirit. Pray often. Be active in sharing your faith. Meet with other believers. These simple disciplines don't earn us a thing. They don't make God love us anymore. But what they do is they give us the nutrients we need to flourish, to live the happy life that we're all looking for. But if you're just looking for the happy life, I've got to progress my career, or I've got to get a sort out a nice car, or a nice place to live, or nice clothes, or good food. Those things are nice, but I tell you, they don't make people happy. They don't. Read some biographies. What makes people happy is knowing I'm loved by God. What makes people happy is being secure in the person God's made me to be. 
church in the West, I think, has been damaged by the pandemic that we've just lived through. People have disconnected and they gather less. Look around. People have been disconnected and they gather less right across the church in the West. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Other things taking the place of the fresh flowing living waters that God offers. The book of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2.13 says this. It's it's the King James Version. It says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that don't hold water. God wants to give water of refreshing. Constantly pour it out. But when we reject that, when we say, I'm not going to be involved in God's mission. I'm not going to read God's word. I'm not going to talk to God. I'm not going to fellowship with God's people. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm free. Still follow Jesus. Watch the odd thing on YouTube and listen to podcasts. That's it. What we find is we become thirsty because we're not drinking the living water that we're meant to be drinking. Jeremiah says the danger is then is you dig a cistern. You dig a sterile, not a sterile, a stagnant cistern that you put water in. There's no movement. It's not a stream. It's just a cistern. And you stick water in that. And the cistern's cracked and broken. And all the water you thought you had that was going to refresh you seeps away. God says, don't reject me, the fountain of living water, and dig cisterns for yourself. In fact, Jesus says in John 4, he said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will be never thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a spring, a well of water springing up to eternal life. So drink deeply of the water God gives. And so I'm drawing to a close, verses 4 to 6. This amazing psalm draws to a close with David contrasting the righteous, that's those who by grace have accepted the gift of God, the righteousness he offers, with the wicked, that's those who've rejected the righteousness God offers. It's not that this group of people are better than those people, it's just one's received a gift, one hasn't. He contrasts them. And he does quite a powerful contrast, I think. Have you noticed, he doesn't say the righteous are like this kind of tree and the wicked are like this kind of tree. He doesn't do that. He says, the righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season, its leaf doesn't wither. There's, there's continuity, there's a consistency. In season, out of season, I'm rooted here. The wicked, he says, are like chaff. They don't have the structure and the roots of a tree. In fact, chaff is the husk of the grain that looks like the life's still in it, but the life has gone. It can be reduced to dust and blown away. Following Jesus is not a collection of feelings, thoughts and imaginations and hallmark sentiments that you see on Facebook. It's the word of God, it's the spirit of God, it's the people of God and it's the mission of God. Because the other stuff... Is like chaff. It breaks up and it blows away and disintegrates. It's a different nature. That's the point the psalmist has made. You see, Jesus says in John 3 5, you must be born again. 
1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Ephesians 2, 1 says that God makes us alive. But God is constantly looking for every individual to have an opportunity to come to know him. It says he's placed in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3, 11, it says God's placed eternity in the heart of people. In other words, every human being knows there's more to life than this. It says in 2 Peter 3, 9, God is patient, not wanting any to perish. He's longing for people to respond. And then in Acts 1, 8 and in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus sends us to make disciples. He says he's put something in us. He's patient, he sends us, but every person needs to respond. God won't make someone love him. He gives them the choice. Because it wouldn't be love if you made someone love you. Chaff looks like there's life, but there's nothing there. The tree has the ability to grow, produce seed, and produce more trees. Following Jesus is not some shapeless collection of feelings and sayings and sentiments. It's the structured understanding of putting our roots into Christ and bearing fruit for him. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, Don't let the glittering, prizes, sorry, the glittering prizes of this world are nothing but chaff. The world in that context is not mountains, hills, forests. It's the godless system or the system of living that imagines there's no God. We're not called to live like chaff, but like magnificent trees that bear fruit for God. As followers of Jesus, we get to be those trees planted by streams of water. At Kings, we're believing to be an orchard. Trees of people, missional communities, missional households, bases, planting churches in other places. I just finished writing this talk. Middle of this week. And Lillian sent me a message. A WhatsApp of a picture that she'd seen of something Kings had done a while ago of an orchard. And she said, I'm just looking at this. I just thought, she literally sent it as I'd stopped typing. I thought, God, you're speaking to us. Someone suddenly sends me a picture of an orchard full of trees, full of fruits, full of apples. And I've just finished writing a sermon on us being trees planted. So it's time, guys, it's time to live like those trees with our roots going deep, bearing fruit in season. I wonder would you stand with me as I pray for you and we're going to worship together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the power of your spirit. Thank you for the fellowship of your people. Thank you for the privilege of being involved in your mission Jesus I pray for us in this room here and those who are dear to us I wonder if you know someone who you think you know what once they're drunk from living waters and now it feels like they're trying to draw from a system that's broken if you can think of someone you'd like us to pray for just raise your hand right up and you just quietly say their name to God Lord, as you see names, hands across the room raised of people that we're thinking of who once drunk of the living, flowing stream of God's refreshing water, but now it's like a broken cistern they're trying to find refreshing in. I pray, Jesus, that they would today have a revelation of your love, of your grace. We're thinking of them now. We're naming them before you. Give them a revelation of the love of God. Give them the revelation that there's living water 
We don't need to drink stale, stagnant water. But we can be drawn to you and be refreshed by you. Pray for the people we're thinking of now. Just refresh, restore, pour your love in. And for each one of us, Jesus, help us by your grace to keep putting our roots deep into the love of God and bearing fruit in keeping with that. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. To find out more about King's Church Warrington, visit our website or find us on Facebook and Instagram.